Welcome to Identity Talk, a show dedicated to unearthing stories about compelling people, doing compelling things, and making compelling discoveries about who they are. I'm Jana Lopez, your hostess. Each episode of Identity Talk, you'll discover illuminating conversations with guests from all walks of life. My life's mission as a book coach, writing guide, and retreat leader is to guide people like you towards clarity and connection through writing. I blend experience and intuition to take your writing to unimaginable results in your creativity and productivity. I offer private and small group retreats in stunning Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm the published author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. If it's time to unearth your own stories, write that book and need clarity, guidance, or support, visit JanaLopez.com. And now, let the unearthing of stories begin on Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time zone you're in. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. And as most of you know who listen, I have some very interesting guests, uh, people from far and wide that I that I come across. And the beautiful thing about the way I come across people, sometimes it just happens that I meet them serendipitously. But it's always the thread is that there's something interesting and notable about who they are in that how they've navigated their profession, their personal life. I don't know. There's always something that draws me to these people. So today is no exception. Jim Gaines, a very successful editor of many publications and author and just an interesting guy. Like we just connected through somebody mutual and I had no idea about the scope and depth of Jim's career until I started doing a little digging. And then I was like blown away (laughs) by how much cool stuff he had done. So Jim Gaines, welcome to Identity Talk. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about your, uh, so people can get a foundation of who you are. Uh, You were the former editor of Time Magazine, Life Magazine, People Magazine, and there were some other publications. Do you want to add to that illustrious list? Uh, No. (laughs) I mean, actually, no. uh, I was the America's editor of Reuters, um, also global photography, and um, I've had a bunch of jobs since then. Um, I actually went into the content marketing business with The Atlantic. As you mentioned, I'm an author and I, I've become basically a full-time author. You've had a couple of books, which we're going to talk about, and one of which that just came out, historical books, would you call it? Historical? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. absolutely. They're all history. Yeah. So let me just start with the beginning. I have to go back to when you were nine years old peddling (laughs) (laughs) comics on a corner somewhere. But how did you get started in journalism as a chosen profession? Honestly, I I went to uh, college as a music major uh, playing the piano. And um, the people around me, you know, their practice rooms and practice rooms are really loud. 
everybody's playing and there's really there's soundproofing, but it doesn't work. People were practicing a lot more than I could stand. So I decided to do my second favorite thing, which was writing. I wrote for um, a penny a word in college. People would hire me to write their essays. And I, that's what I really wanted to do. And I was an English major. And um, when I got out of college, I didn't have a job in journalism. So I, uh, I worked in Queens for Screen Gems doing mailing labels to send cartoons to local TV stations all around the country. Finally, uh, thanks to a chance uh, connection, I went to work for a, for a new newspaper for New York City called The Herald, which a guy with a trust fund was funding himself. Needless to say, it failed. But I had clips at that point, and I got a job at Saturday Review. And it was a wonderful job. And I, I got to spend three days with Tennessee Williams. I mean, it was it was an amazing job. Oh, my God. How was yeah. that? You can't In just Key throw West. something like that. In-, <laughs> In Key West. And I remember that Tennessee and uh, James Leo Hurley, a midnight cowboy, were smoking uh, weed. And I was sitting there uh, looking at both of them and I, I had smoked some too, and I had no idea what they were talking about. I couldn't <laughs> remember anything. I mean, it was, it, was, it was bad, but fortunately, it was just that night. And he gave me a wonderful interview, which Saturday Review published. And I did a bunch of stories for Saturday Review. And then, as I had promised my wife, we moved back after a year from San Francisco, which is where Saturday Review had moved to. And then I looked for a job and I got a job at uh, Channel 13, the 51st state doing doing stories, uh, you know, but video, obviously, for television. And that was interesting. Um, Let me ask you something before we move on from Tennessee Williams, because that feels like a pivotal moment because you have interviewed so many famous people and presidents and dignitaries and historical figures and icons. So with Tennessee Williams, was there a self-consciousness? How am I going to do this? Or were you overwhelmed? Or were you like in awe? Like what was going through your mind? Because that, 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 that set the tone for like what is possible with journalism in terms of contact and interviews with famous people. I made a terrible mistake, which was to write down all of my questions. Mm-hmm. And not to listen sufficiently to his answer. That gave the interview some a choppy quality, in, even in print as well. It was not a discussion. It was more a list of questions that I just asked, and he would answer. And then we, I'd ask another one, and he would answer it. Um, it wasn't. Uh, it was great, but I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from the mistakes I made in my career. You know, that's really important. You'd get you'd get defensive about them with other people, but inside you know it was your fault and you would not do that again. Is it true that as you, because I interview people too and I listen to people and I and I hear what you're saying and how people make mistakes they're more interested in their questions than they are in the answers of who they're speaking with in having these conversations with people learning so much along the way is there a measure of grace that goes with recognition of learning as learning and not as failure. It's difficult to uh, think that. For example, at 51st State, I was assigned to cover a school board hearing in New Jersey. I was in the truck with the video 
people. And at the break, a break in the meeting, I went in and talked to the person who was running the meeting and said, this is really boring. Oh, if, boy. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when How I does it taste? Off, How does the sole of your shoe taste? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I get back to the office, the senior producer said, you just committed the worst possible sin in journalism. And of course, I wrote a memo to him saying I did nothing wrong, blah, 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 blah. But I, of course, knew that I had done something wrong. So I never did that again. But I was not learning. I was defending myself, which, but I was learning. I mean, I, I defended myself from him, but not from myself. It's an interesting thing, I think, being in the position that you're in, because over the elevation of your career, let's just stay the, say the steps that you had taken in a professional ladder, for lack of a better term, to get a better job, better job, more prestigious job, more notable job. Of course, the pressure and responsibility of ethics and accuracy, right? Like just who you are in the world as a professional, as an editor. Does any of that damper your, like a, a journalist's enthusiasm for being full board in any situation because you have to be so careful? I mean, as the editor of Time Magazine or Life Magazine, you would think, the standard is so high. <laughs> the higher you go, the higher the expectation, I guess. But also, you know, I wrote for years and years before I, you know, got a job in management. I learned a lot about, about compression, about storytelling. And actually, I, I don't call, I know that some former journalists call themselves a historian. I don't call myself an historian. I call myself a storyteller. I do immense research. I think what I write is, is true history, but I don't write it that way. I write it as a story. What makes a good story to you? Because as writers, when we write stories that we feel close to or we connect with, that is what comes through. So what is it for you that makes a good story? Interesting characters, obviously, but, but more than that, uh, characters that illustrate a moment in history that is deeply appealing to me because you need that in order to do all the work that writing a book requires. And, and writing a book requires a huge amount of work. For the 50s book that you referred to at the top, it took me almost, it took me more than 10 years. Now, part of that was because I was working in other jobs at the time. I did the research for a 500-page book and, and boiled it down to 200 like 206, I think, exactly. And compression was one of the things I really learned because in a magazine, you know, printing is very expensive. So you tend to try to uh, do sort of short or short-ish. I did lots of long pieces too. But it's got to be something that grabs me personally that makes me want to learn about. Uh, because without that, you're not going to put up with all the work and all the time that's involved. I wrote a book about Bach and Frederick the Great. Bach was the, was the person whose music I, I specialized in and always have always loved more than anyone else. He came from a different world from Frederick at a time when the world of myth that he came from was giving way to the Enlightenment. And Frederick was the ultimate Enlightenment figure. He was praised for having not ever discriminated against religion, but it was because he held religion in contempt. He, he paid no attention to religion because he thought it was all false. Whereas Bach was all about spirituality. 
um, all about Lutheran, uh, you know, the, the Reformation, that clash between the world of myth and spirituality with the world of Frederick the Great and the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. Voltaire was a friend of his, was deeply motivating to me because I want to understand it. I mean, and that's actually, something that you personally care about in some yes, level. exactly. Right. It has to be that. It has right. to be. The next book was about France and the United States. And I wrote it when we were living in Paris. And it was during the Iraq War. And the United States and France, if you remember, were at war with each other. You know, France was really an enemy of the United States, um, especially after Abu Ghraib, Ghraib, when it was shown how awfully uh, the prisoners were, were treated in, in um, jails in Iraq. It was interesting because we were stopped on the street not more than once by people who apologized the way France was treating Americans because we had liberated them in World War II. Generally, they seem to have some connection to Normandy, which is not surprising, but um, it was moving to be stopped that way. Anyway, I wrote a book about, about the French and American revolutions and how they happened simultaneously and, and how, in what ways they were so different and yet so connected. And I think this, to reference the names of the book, that book you refer to as For Liberty and Glory, Washington, Lafayette, and the Revolutions. The book about Bach and Frederick is Evening in the Palace of Reason. Bach meets Frederick in the great in the age of enlightenment. And the recent book that just came out, I want to say only six months ago, was The 50s, An Underground History. And the tagline related to this book is a bold and original argument that appends the myth of the 50s as a decade of conformity to celebrate the solitary, brave, and stubborn individuals who pioneered the radical gay rights, feminist, civil rights, and environmental movements. So there were a lot of people and a lot of characters, to your point, that I think what I'm hearing you say or what I'm getting from this is that even though we have this sort of mythological uh, story that that uh, remains about what the 50s was and this ideal idealized notion of it, you were interested in the people, these, these radicals who did not necessarily want to take on these roles, but ended up taking up these roles that shifted the entire movement of the 50s into the 60s. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So... Can you give me an example of a couple of those people, just who you're thinking, who you wrote about? I mean, it's uh, Harry Hay, uh, who started the Mattachine Society, which was the first sustained uh, gay activist group in the United States. He was married with two children in the Communist Party. One of the things I discovered that was really shocking to me is that Nazi Germany, the, the United States, and the Soviet Union shared the same view of gays as criminals, um, felons, uh, imprisoned for that. Germany had sentenced many gays uh, before uh, World War II broke out. When we liberated the concentration camps to which they had been sent because they had been in German prisons, we did not liberate the men with pink triangles on their shoulders. We gave them back to German justice, uh, and they had to serve out their sentences with no credit for time served in the concentration camps. That's shocking. 
it's a totally shocking. Fucked up. It's wrong in so yeah. many ways. Right. Harry Hay, at that moment, 1946, right after World War II, had this idea that gays were a kind of a separate nation, hmm. that they had the right to be treated as equal citizens and respected. And he could not understand why that wasn't the case. His wife knew that he was gay, thought that he could be converted by her. She couldn't do that. That's so obviously. sad. And he had he realized he had to leave his wife and his children and the Communist Party because they they threw him out. I mean, they they threw a gaze out. And he was deeply committed to the work that he was doing. And it wasn't subversive work. It was work that was trying to solve economic problems like housing and problems that truly existed. And he entered at that point when he was trying to decide what to do. He called that a period of terror in his life. He had awful dreams about hurting his wife, hurting his children, crashing his car, going down mountainsides until he and he and he couldn't find anyone to join him because they were they were scared. Let me ask you this. So it's interesting because you've interviewed and have covered people like Princess Diana and Liberace. Mark Chapman, which I want to talk a little more about, presidents. And so there are these high profile people whose stories you've covered and shared, especially people that think they know these people's stories. And then there are these other people that have made a huge impact on history that most people may not know their names. Is there a difference between somebody like Liberace and Mr. Hay? <laughs> uh, well, yes. Uh, Liberace was luck lucky enough to live a decade after, and he was a great subject. I loved that story. His public persona was so different from the private person. He was a very complicated character mm -hmm. who would smile to his fans. And when he turned, this is what I remember most, when he turned away from them, his face went to flat zero. Hmm. In fact, even, even deeper than flat zero. It was like a, a look of sadness. Interesting. And getting to that was what made that story. And in fact, friends of his wrote me and said, you got it. Were you uh, grateful to be able to, because I, I know as a writer or as an interviewer, if I can get to the essence of the person and share who they think they are, that makes me so happy because yeah. everybody tells their story the way they want it. And hundred out of a hundred people will never get it right because they don't care about getting to it. So that, I mean, that must've made you feel human to human, making that human to human contact feels yes, so good yes. when you get it. Yes, it is. It is. And I, and I, I mean, nobody else had written that. And he Was he grateful? That. I never heard from him. I don't know. Interesting. But they were friends who wrote me. So I don't think they would have been, they would have, wouldn't have written me if they thought, he really hated the story. And then when there's characters that you have to shift your own interests in, you know, like with Mark Chapman, we talked about this. So Mark Chapman was the person who assassinated John Lennon and did not have any interviews for a while. And then you were the first to interview him and share the story which was huge at the time. I remember that time and it was for People Magazine and you had a chance and you spent hours and hours and hours talking to Mark Chapman. So in that case, you and I had a personal conversation when we went for coffee about how 
you you had to really turn off your own <laughs> yeah your own opinions to be able to sit there and have a conversation with the person who murdered John Lennon. So tell me a little bit about what you were thinking in your process and sort of how to get to a truth. Cause you, you were a fan of John Lennon, you know, like everybody yeah. like, so how was that? How do you, how do you navigate that? Um, it was really difficult. Uh, um, um, I don't really know how to describe it. <laughs> uh, he was, it was, it was, I had to turn clinical, yeah. you know, I had to kind of uh, distance myself from him, um, but without appearing to do that. Right. Um, so it was, it was a difficult kind of balance to maintain. And yeah, I saw him for, I don't remember how many hours, but I, I, I drove to Attica. I can't tell you how many times. Um, and each time I go, I went, I would meet a different Mark Chapman, not mm. each time. But he vacillated between uh, the catcher and the rye of the present generation and the uh, uh, evangelist Christian um, who, who hated what he had done. So it was a complicated story. I don't think I really got to the bottom of it. Um, I think this, I, I wrote two stories. I mean, I wrote the three-part story was the big one. But before the trial, just on the eve of the trial, I wrote another story. And I think I may have gotten closer in that story to who he is then in the one where I had spent so much time with him. Um, and I remember my daughter telling me that she answered the phone and it was Mark Chapman and she kept, he kept her on the phone for a while. And she was then maybe eight or nine. And I never spoke to Chapman again. That was that was the end because um, he had a very problematic relationship with children. Um, problematic is not not the right word. It was deeper than that, um, and um, I just hated the idea that he had talked to her. That is so creepy. It is so unsettling. And when you were talking about doing these conversations with him, I got two things that came up. One is incredible heartbreak at the harm and permanent injury he had caused in a moment and the anger of that. And then trying to make cognitive sense of something that will never, ever be able to have any rationality to the horrific nature of what he had done to the entirety of the world for the rest of our lives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny, but when the, some, on some anniversaries, CNN has asked me to talk about Chapman and each time there have been not many, maybe two or three, I I broke down. Yeah. Talking about Lenin. Yeah. And and why I was so motivated to find out what the hell had happened. Right. Um, and of course I didn't really. Um, but it's interesting. I saw him, I saw a picture of him in prison now. Mm-hmm. And it looked to me like he was sort of a middle-class banker type. Mm. And it occurred to me that he was more comfortable in prison than he'd been out of prison. Mm -hmm. The prison guards say he's a perfect prisoner, mm. just perfect. And he looks happy. And I think it's because he really was crazy and prison took all of his decisions away. He didn't have to decide anything anymore. Um, I mean, I think maybe that's what he was looking for. I don't know. 
Yeah. And I think that when you describe that, I think we have to remain distant. We have to separate ourselves. If you think about you, Jim, being the one to be the carrier of these words that people probably wanted and needed for just at the depth of the grief, hoping that your words, your inter- your internalization, your understanding, your expression of this event that has no words, you know, I, I would have to separate myself, putting myself in your shoes to for the weight of that responsibility. And I would have to just be true to whatever that moment is. Like, I don't think I could think of all the implications of that. Right. All of these things of my lives, all of the people, all of the accomplishments, personal, professional, or otherwise just becomes part of that mosaic of who I am. But that's a pretty cool piece to have, I think, and knowing you at least had the opportunity to offer some healing for people that were so deeply in grief. Yeah. Still. Including me. Yeah. yeah. Still. I mean, I think we still, we still feel the re- the repercussions of that. And did you ever have a chance to talk to any of the other Beatles? Were they ever curious? I, did, I didn't talk to the other Beatles. I didn't even try actually, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, he had broken off with them at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to talk to Yoko. I, I just felt, ah, no, mm-hmm. you know, why put her through that? Mm-hmm. And, but I did talk to his wife, his, his mother, his, the, his friends in Atlanta, the, the guy who had given him the bullets, who was, a, who was then working for a police department there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I, had, I got a lot of, I got, talked to his employer in Hawaii at the hospital, talked to his therapist. Um, so, yeah, I got to a lot of people. You had said, I think that you found the prosecution's thesis flawed. It requires the belief that a man who would decide to spend his life in prison rather than one more day in obscurity is in his right mind. Do you, do you remember we talked about that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I think that alludes to what you were talking about him being happy in prison. Yeah, I, yeah. That, you're right. I hadn't, th- I hadn't put that together, but you're right. Yeah. Um, the other thing that the story was about was the insanity defense and how um, how subjective it is and how easily it can be misused. The, 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 the one story that I will never forget is that one psychologist came to prison with a suitcase full of The Catcher in the Rye, copies of The Catcher in the Rye. And he had Mark start signing them as soon as he got there. And that is so when wrong. he was finished signing, the psychologist said, okay, Mark, we're done. And, and Mark said, well, we haven't even talked really. He said, well, I've got enough. Uh, that's fine. Just, I couldn't believe it. it that is it terrible. The insanity defense doesn't make anyone look good. And also it's always so arguable. Who's to say what's insane? I have moments yeah. I feel insane and I'm not saying that to be <laughs> sarcastic. I mean, there are moments Who's to say? Like, it's such a complicated, layered, nuanced thing. It's kind of like asking not to bring up another controversial topic, but to me, it seems similar talking about a fetus. When does birth start? When we're talking about abortion rights, it's like, who's to say there are these big, broad things open for interpretation based on whatever beliefs, religion, psychological, economic, racial, really all of it comes into it. Who's to say? Yeah. Agreed. And, uh, you know, I think it's, 
it's fortunate that Chapman decided not to, um, decided to plead guilty and not rely on the insanity defense. It also speaks to his wish to be in prison. Right. Think about it now. Sometimes we don't even know what these historical events have in meaning until a decade or decades later. And I think about what the world would be like with a John Lennon in it now today, if ever there was a time that it was needed. (laughs) I can't imagine. I mean, you've been out of journalism for a while in the role of sort of this editor, writer, storyteller, coverage of celebrity in People magazine. You and I also talked about this, that there was a, a need for that type of journalism at that time, that it serves a purpose. And they actually did well-written stories about people, right? Yeah. And that was what yeah. drew you to it. But the difference in how celebrity is covered today versus 20, 30 years ago, what do you think of it all? I can't imagine being somebody in your position that had a moral, ethical, non-social media sort of way of approaching storytelling. And now it's like anybody with a Twitter account can become an influencer and tell some bullshit story. What do you think of the way, quote unquote, journalism is today in how it covers celebrities? I think it's much more superficial than it was when People magazine was in its uh, prime. I despair of the whole news scene. Yeah. Uh, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post are still great newspapers. And other newspapers do good work occasionally. Mm-hmm. But when you watch TV news, there's there's not the kind of objectivity that was demanded before. Mm-hmm. People are telling you what to think, mm-hmm. not not what happened. I remember when I went to Time Magazine, I, the first thing I said was, I don't know, I don't want to know what you think. I want to know what you can find out. And when you said that, it's not, the difference feels like now it's what to think, as then it was how to think. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Or, or yeah, it was, it was giving you the information mm-hmm. from which you could draw Mm-hmm. your own conclusions. Right. Uh, but now when I watch, I mean, you know, when I watch uh, cable news, it's just, it's being lectured to. Right. With, with full dramatic effect, with, you know, with, with stagecraft in, in, the, in the interaction. Fox News uh, is disgusting. It's not news. It's it's propaganda. No, exactly. It's just it's just uh, yeah. But you find the same thing on MSNBC. Right. Uh, honestly, I mean, um, I'm closer to MSNBC for sure, but politically. Uh, but I wish I didn't. I wish we didn't notice the difference. Right. I wish people would just be straight and tell us the information from which we can make our own conclusions. Um, and I, 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 Publications like Time and Life were the absolute gold standard, in my opinion, of the integrity of journalism at one time. Nothing, nothing comes close to, to that when I, I think about it. And as a PR person, when I was doing helping people with nonprofits telling the stories, I would see names like yours on the masthead. And people like you would feel like you're way, you know untouchable, unreachable, like this was this huge, (laughs) huge thing out there, because the separation between public opinion and journalistic integrity were absolutely there, meaning 
you were there over there doing your thing at the publication, a name on a masthead that I would never, ever, ever get to talk to or pitch a story to or whatever. And here, the public, me, we would always remain so separate. Now, it feels like there is no real integrity separation between what people do as their jobs and sort of the public influence or opinion. Yeah, I think that's right. You could call you could call the head the talking heads on the news influencers. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what they're that's what they're trying to do. Clearly. Right. I mean, it's sad. I have a lot of friends who are in journalism who yeah. hung their hats yeah. on their integrity and their duty, their social duty to uh, connect the public to issues that were of importance. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about then how you navigate. You just had this book. How much uh, time did this current book take you to write? And how do you feel about it being out in the world? I feel really good about the book. It took more than a decade to, to, uh, to write, because partly because I was working at the time. The thing that, I, that, I, that grabbed me about the 50s, and I lived through the 50s, I mean, I, I remember the 50s. It actually started at time. Hillary Clinton was, was always saying, change begins by changing the law, after which hearts and minds will follow. And that always felt wrong to me, because it almost felt like, okay, we'll force people to change. What intrigued me about the 50s was that change began with individuals and the, the, the pain and the conflicts in their own lives, which they were determined or couldn't help themselves from um, taking on. And that's how change starts, with people mm-hmm. who can change the minds of lawmakers and the, and the general public. And that's, that's why I wrote the book, because you know, with, with the decision in Dobbs and the Supreme Court, given the way it is, it's important to remember what Martin Luther King said, which is that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I think that these people, starting in their own lives, is where they, they are the people who make change and or who begin to make change. Feels so optimistic, even though we're in such weird fucking times right now where everything feels so overwhelmingly away from justice and people's voices get drowned out. And I work with people helping them tell their stories based on their passion so they can be included in the social currency. I look at our stories as social currency and I'm determined to help people find those voices. And it feels like it's harder. So I like hearing you say that and feeling that optimism, even though you've been through decades of a journalistic career that I'm sure has had ups and downs, even as a journalist looking at the shit storm that is today, you know, you still have that optimism, it feels like. And I love that. Yes, but I have to remember how much pain the people who did it were in right at the time right and, and in a way that's that's not optimistic but it is i dedicated the book to my grandchildren because i wanted them to know well and i wrote the book because i wanted the world to know that hope is always a good idea mm-hmm. it's always it's a, it's a better idea than despair and you know uh closing off uh your mind to the possibility that things could be better. That's, 
that's where things become better. That's where things begin to become better. You know, last night I was watching the hearings with my two sons, which is the reason we moved to Los Angeles. Their generation is much more cynical than mine was, uh, much more um, distrustful of um, things that I don't distrust. <laughs> they were, as people were testifying, they were pointing out their self-interest or their, and, and it's not, they weren't wrong, but um, the general tenor of the hearings was something that I was grateful for, that they, get, they were gathering evidence. Um, and though obviously they, they were trying to prove a case, this wasn't a criminal investigation, um, they were making known facts that people need to know. And uh, my sons didn't seem to have that. Well, first of all, they weren't that interested. They weren't as interested as I was because I covered Watergate at Newsweek. And this to me was, it was worse than Watergate, uh, a lot worse. And, and so my journalistic instincts were drawn to the story, but I thought it was very moving. I mean, uh, the, the testimony that uh, Ms. Hutchinson gave was really moving because she was obviously trying to be thoughtful about it and not talking head. And that's interesting that you say that. I wonder if we're more bound to this current division because of this generation's inherent mistrust, because even on the other side of the aisle, they call fake news and this and that. There's a lot of mistrust. And I think that is fed and proliferated and actually makes any form of rational thinking or critical thinking or um, conversational discussions about issues that divide us, that, that feels more of an impossibility. So it's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, whether we mistrust them, they mistrust us or whatever, the basis of it is nobody trusts anything anymore. I think that this is just my speculation, but I yeah. think that the, the distrust comes from the fact that we've, been, we've become an oligarchy. And, and, and people at the bottom rungs of the economy don't have the opportunities. I mean, my parents, my father was a cash register repairman. My mother grew up, both of them grew up very poor. But my mother always said, um, we didn't know we were poor because everybody was. Mm -hmm. But my father, you know, by, by his own um, strength, and he said his experience in the Navy in World War II, rose through the ranks steadily, mm -hmm. made himself a good living, became a vice president of a national cash register company. There's not that opportunity anymore, it doesn't seem. I mean, I, I was lucky. I went to college. My parents never went to college. Mm -hmm. um, but we were all sort of in the same boat. It doesn't feel like we're all in the same boat anymore. That's interesting. A friend of mine, and she's Hispanic and a hairdresser and a marvel at her, what I would say would be conservative beliefs, because the conservative belief system, the way it exists today is actually against her. It's actually not for her. It's not going to lift her boat up. And yet there's something about the false idealism 
that I think is propagated that it is possible, but yet everything in the system is against making it possible. And so I think it's an interesting thing that people still hold the belief that their slice of the American pie is inevitable, but they're on those rungs of never going to ever be able to achieve much, no matter how hard they work, because everything is rigged against them. I, I just, I agree with that. And it's, it, it makes me sad to think about because it doesn't seem that hard to fix. I know. I mean, it's, you know, watching Joe Manchin just defy Biden's very good program uh, is, is, is watching something pretty bad uh, because you know that he's, <laughs> that he's not, unaffected by the by the one industry in West Virginia uh, that 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 supports so many jobs right. I mean, you, you can understand why he would take the position he did but um, politicians too often take decisions not for the best interest of the country but for their own personal interest and um, and I imagine that that's a thing that's hard to defeat unless you enforce term limits and get money out of politics. You know, the other piece of that, which I'll just add, the world is changing. The demographics of the world is changing. The needs of the world is changing. The, the way we interact, converse and connect and coalesce in these cultures that come together. I think everything's changing to base our existence and how we move in the world, our laws, whatever it is on these sort of archaic <laughs> thoughts and, and ideas that for, were from hundreds of years ago that have no application in today's world. You know, I don't, I think people just don't understand how to deal with a changing world. They don't understand the nature of these changes. And it's, I could see why it would be confusing, but I don't get the anger that comes with it. I'm not sure I understand it completely either, um, period. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, like, it's confounding. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. For you, writing today, are you able to get to a place where you're writing for yourself and not with purpose or a or professional end game in, in sight? Like, are you able to re have you been able to shift your writing because we've written your whole life for these purposes and for these other people. But I know in working with a lot of people to get to this place where they can write for themselves takes a long time. And, and sometimes people reach it. Sometimes they don't, but when they do, there's like this real joy and freedom. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I don't write about myself. I don't, uh, and I don't write fiction. I just don't have that. Right, genie. Um, but absolutely, I feel not that it's not a struggle. It is a struggle to write, and right. especially to compress uh, without distorting. But um, but yes, I do write for myself for sure. I can't take on a book that I'm not really deeply interested in learning about the subject. Right. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to do that. Can you write without compression? Compression, you said no. that I automatically thought 500 words or less and I cringed. <laughs> right. No, no, no. Uh, well, no, I mean, I write book length pieces, but I try to keep the reader going because that's what I learned in magazines. You know, you, you've got to write in a way that, um, 
that encourages people to keep reading. Right. Um, Can you write to keep yourself encouraged to keep writing as yes, looking at it as a writer and not as a reader? Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. That's why I call myself a storyteller, you know, and not an historian. I, I, I really, I need to be engaged in the story. That's awesome. I saw John Krakauer at a literary event recently, and I loved what he said. He said, I am not a writer. I'm a researcher. And I only take on stories about things that interest me. Uh, and I'm always curious about motivation. And so if you think about these sweeping epic books and uh, stories he's written, I mean, he spent all his time doing the research. That's what keeps him going is the stories that lead to the other stories. Absolutely. I yeah. totally agree with that. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of people that could have been in this book on the 50s that, that are not. And yeah. I spent an awful lot of time researching. I mean, it, it, when I, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> I, there was a whole other book that I didn't write. Um, so, yeah, it's just as long as you're really interested in knowing the question you've started to ask, mm -hmm. you keep writing and you, and you, um, you know, you have good days and bad days, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, my best day is a 1200 word day that's uh, like that's huge mm -hmm. um, because of course i'm compressing so it's like, it's like for someone else it might be a 6000 word day you know so anyway i want to say thank you so much for sharing such interesting thoughts i personally have so much respect and admiration for what you've been able to accomplish and what you've gifted the world with your enthusiasm and integrity for people's stories the way the luck of the draw worked out in your professional career sure but you also earned it and gave yourself to your career and you know to be able to say oh yeah I covered Watergate like just so casually but you know most people have never been witness to some of these historical events to the degree that you have you know and I I think that's pretty awesome. I, I admire that so much, but that's one part of it. The other part of it is how you interpret it and express it so that we who are not as close have a chance to connect to those moments in history. And when Princess Di was killed in a car accident or Watergate or Mark Chapman who murdered John Lennon or Liberace or any of these stories, celebrities, journalists, people who are just trying to, you know, get by in their lives. I think we all share that common humanness. And, and I think you've been able to find ways through the books and articles that you've written to connect those dots. Well, I appreciate that. Thank mm -hmm. you. Something to be super proud of, even if it's not talking about yourself, I'll acknowledge it. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. I've been very lucky. Very lucky. Well, so for people who want to uh, check out Jim's latest book, The 50s and Underground History, I myself can't wait to read it. And again, it, the tagline that I had gotten is that it's a fascinating and beautifully written series of character portraits. The 50s invokes the accidental radicals, people motivated not by politics, but by their own most intimate conflicts who sparked movements for change in their own time and on their own. So 
we all have that opportunity, right? It goes back to just trying to find the hope. Can't wait to read it. I bet it's going to be totally interesting. And I will let you know. <laughs> I'll, help, I'll help you find it. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you to Jim Gaines, editor of Time and Life and People Magazine and author and uh, just an all around. He does not want to be called a historian. So we'll just call him an awesome storyteller. I appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate yours. Thanks for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. If now's the time to unearth your story or you just have to write that book, don't let fear or overwhelm stop you. Reach out. I'm here to help you achieve your creative writing dreams. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on this show, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. Hey, reach out. Find me at janalopez.com. Thank you.